Hey everybody, welcome to Threepcast. I'm Elliot. I'm Anton. And I'm Phil. And did you know that later life pictures of Tom Hanks and Bill Murray are indistinguishable? Do you want me to respond to that, Phil? Because I don't, I, I don't know what to no. say. No, it's relevant. But, <laughs> it's relevant, but no, yes. No response. We, 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 we don't know. I mean, it's the Cornmander. Yeah, it's, it's the Cornmander. The great Cornmander. And on this mini-sode, we're going to be doing things slightly differently. Um, we're going to be tackling a fan game adventure game. Um, mm-hmm. So it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be covering MI2, LeChuck's Revenge. So fasten your seatbelts and get ready to be inundated with pop culture references. to LeChuck's Revenge. Um, this is sort of a, a less well-known uh, fan game. Or, well, I feel like most of the original fan games that came out are, are kind of not well-known these days. But basically the idea behind this game... You're an old man, Ellie. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy to think, like, all of these games that I'm going to be referencing are, like, 15 years old now. Like, it, it's, it really does kind of make me feel old. Anyway, so the idea behind this fan game is that uh, it's a retelling of Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge, um, but it does it through the lens of pop culture references. So um, every screen almost has got, like, its own uh, reference to, you know, some movie or some other game or some piece of anime or something like that. And uh, it was made in click and play, which... Um, those of you who are into game development may remember is like a, uh, a mid-90s game development tool that a lot of uh, fan game makers kind of latched on to um, to make uh, various uh, games about their favorite game characters sort of without permission from the official copyright owners. Um, yeah, I'm kind of rambling at this point. Yeah, no, we <laughs> used a lot of click and play in Games Factory mm. growing up. Yeah, no, that was definitely a huge part of our childhood. We, we were avid click and play users as well. Um, mm-hmm. So this, because it's click and play, um, the game is still available on uh, on the internet. But the the problem is that click and play doesn't run on modern operating systems. So if you want to play this game, um, you're going to have to do a little bit of uh, uh, computer foo to get it working. Um, computer foo. We were uh, fortunate enough to uh, have click and play's uh, successor uh, called the Games Factory, which does still run on modern operating systems. So what I did was. I just uh, converted all the MI2 games into Games Factory games and, and played it that way. But obviously that option is not going to be available to everybody. So, um, you know, use your best discretion on, on how you want to get a 32-bit fan game running on your computer if you want to play this. Could, should we... Is Games Factory not available anymore? Now they have the, the Games Factory 2. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Click Team, the, the company that made Click and Play, I'm pretty sure their current products aren't backwards compatible with Click and Play. And I really do feel old. Yeah, so as I kind of alluded to earlier, um, the uh, fan game scene was kind of a lot more popular and, and prevalent sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s. You saw a lot more, you know, little GeoCities websites popping up with people making their own fan games about, about various other uh, game licenses. Do you guys have any fond memories of that, that sort of era of, uh, of internet games? It was very sincere, like, people just like, yeah, I really like this character, what if they were in X setting? Like, mm, yeah. that's, I have very fond memories of just kind of, like, 
it, it was all very imaginative. It may have not been, like, the highest quality, but it was still so enjoyable just because everyone got to, like, you know, show, like, you know, oh, well, what would happen if this character was in this scenario? Because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of MI2 is based sort of on that, like, the guy just loved Guybrush 3, but what if Guybrush did this or that? What if he had the chance to do these things? Right, right. So, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories just because, like, mm-hmm. uh, this is- people letting their imaginations run wild. It was also kind of a, a predecessor to the indie game scene. Like, when, when all these games came out, there really wasn't any avenue for, you know, developers working out of their houses to publish games, really. You know, uh-huh. the best you had was maybe, like, Flash games on... Uh... See, I don't even know if, if, like, Armor Games or Congregate were even around back then. I can't remember. But the, I don't there think really so. weren't any, like, major avenues for these people to get their work out there. So th- this was kind of like a, a a neat little blip on on like, you know, the game history radar of just like this explosion of, you know, mm-hmm. people making their own games and uh, with the tools they had available to them. Um, yeah. So, uh, yep. So, but enough about that. Let's uh, let's get back to the game at hand. Mi two. Um, quick roundtable. Um, what did you guys uh, think of the game? Did it hold up after all these years? Uh, Phil, why don't you go first? Oh, gosh. Well, so I probably, out of the three of us, have played this the most. Um, I remember growing up, like, I didn't, like, my computer was kind of a toaster. I didn't understand the internet at the time. So I remember asking Elliot constantly, you know, if I could play the MI2 fan game. Because I just really enjoyed it. It was just a really goofy game, and I liked, you know, all the different endings and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I can definitely say it does not withstand the test of time for me at <laughs> least it was it's i still enjoy it but like i'll, I'll talk about this later like whenever we want to like go into full like in-depth review but overall i'd say it's about i'd say it's a seven out of ten for myself personally for everyone else that like if you hadn't like played it growing up i would say maybe like six six point five it's enjoyable like you're gonna, gonna get some laughs out of it but you may want to like not have terribly like crazy high expectations mm-hmm. i just yeah because i it's like well like you said we used to play it a lot back when it had first come out and i just remember i just have this memory of thinking of it as this really huge expansive like elaborate game <laughs> so it's like it's interesting to come back later and play it and be like oh okay let's see it with fresh eyes i guess mm-hmm. yeah and i mean like our notion of independent games or fan games is just so astronomically changed now mm. like we have such mm, high yeah. expectations now even just from fan games this is like really like top shelf fan game stuff though yeah that's what i was, oh, yeah. I was gonna say is that like if coming from the perspective of someone who's used click and play and has played a lot of click and play games back when that was kind of the norm for fan games i would say this is far and above like the most disciplined well thought out well constructed click and play game that i've ever seen just right. on a I mean, technical it, it, level. Like, he, he really, like, pushes the engine to its limits with this, like... The fact that the engine is not really designed for adventure games, it's mostly, to my understanding, used for platforming and, uh, like, shooters, mm-hmm. like, arcade shooters. Yeah. Right, yeah. Like, the fact, the fact that he was able he to put together... What he did is insane. Yeah, the fact that he was able to put together, like, a complete, fully functional point-and-click game and click-and-play, that by itself is pretty impressive, because I remember that was something that Anton and I always kind of struggled with, was how to make click and play or, or the games factory kind of conform to that tier will to that genre because like you said it's not really built for point and click games it's more built for uh, for platformers like mario and so it's it's impressive on that level but the uh 
on, on an animation level as well, I would say it's it's really impressive. So this is one of the only the only click and play game that I'm aware of that features full screen animation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with like, I think so. Yeah, the, the on the uh, the third part of the game where Guybrush uh, storms Lechak's oh, fortress, there's a lot of like Matrix style full screen animations where with Guybrush doing all this karate and jumping off of buildings and you know doing karate <laughs> kicks. It was just it, you know apart from it being like you know parody material i found it to be very impressive just and, and if you if you crack open the game's code it's like every frame is like meticulously timed with time codes and and click and play that's really time consuming to do that kind of thing so yeah it's definitely very impressive on a technical level even if objectively when you compare it to other games it, it really hasn't aged that well it's, but it's got that great quality that i love so much in so many of these fan games that it's just scrappy and fun and mm, yeah you know, it's, it's like where we're at with indie games right now, you, you it's treated a lot more like art pieces. Yeah, I feel like they have to have it be all be really like carefully well cr- thought out. Oh yeah, like carefully crafted, deep. and every piece fits together like a huge piece of clockwork, and it's just it's impressive in a different way. But mm-hmm. then this is just so carefree and fun the way these this game and other games like it were designed. Yeah, it plays very fast and loose um, with just kind of sense of humor and in, in, in game construction mm. it, it, it kind of more exists for like getting to the next joke than uh being a coherent mm. like standalone game it's like how part three is all like a platforming shooter just just because just, just like because, well, i wanted yeah, to just... do a platforming shooter now so yeah exactly it's just you know goofy <laughs> and fun and i don't know it's it's something you don't see too much of in games these days Although it so, probably bears saying that fan games are still around, I just don't follow them as closely. I mean, Isn't I it? yeah, they are still around. Like there was a, a Super Metroid fan game that got I think mm-hmm. Nintendo took <laughs> it down recently, and then there was like a Pokemon fan game too. I, I think that the tenor of them is a little different. It's kind of like you were describing, where it's like they're much more carefully crafted pieces of art um, that you know made by people mm-hmm. who have a lot of programming experience. You don't really see like tools like the games factory or click and play being used well on on moss to be you know th- put out lots of you know mario and stuff, sonic fan games stuff does still exist like there are mario fan game hubs that constantly post people's fan games made with stuff like game maker oh really yeah and there's just this stuff isn't as high profile now because we have indie games and those get a lot more attention this other stuff is also kind of like into the background just in general like it, you don't really see a lot of fan-made adventure games just because of how time-consuming they are to make. That is true. Like they're a very I specialized like you, genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually, you see like teams of uh, of people getting behind a, a fan-made adventure game. You don't usually see it, like one guy doing it all by himself. And then at that point, uh, they always just go pro and do something original. Yeah, this, exactly. This, this game is just in a really interesting like game history niche. Yeah, yeah. One thing I will say, though, getting back onto MI2 itself, um, I thought that the sense of humor in the game was very much in keeping with the actual Monkey Island series sense of humor. Like, there were several mm-hmm. scenes where I could hear, you know, Guybrush, you know, you know, Dominic, yeah, yeah. Dominic Armada's voice saying the things that Guybrush says in this fan game. It felt very true to the, the spirit of Monkey Island, if... Uh-huh. If if LucasArts suddenly decided to make a completely bonkers, you know, parody-laced <laughs> Monkey Island game, then I feel mm-hmm. like it would definitely, uh, you know... It, it was very much... It was very close to Monkey Island's uh, sensibilities in terms of humor, I thought. That is very true. It seemed like... 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Stan especially struck me as like being like, yeah, okay, I could, I could pretty much see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, and also, um, I, I felt like, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about how the game hasn't aged particularly well, which I, I would agree with. Um, that being said, I, I do think that it's fun to see him get better with uh, graphics and uh, animation as, as it goes on. Like, uh-huh. part one is very, very rough around the edges, but then, like, each part gets progressively more and more polished. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought parts four and, and the uh, the fifth part with all the extra endings were, were extremely impressive uh, in terms of, like, just being really tight uh, presentation-wise. Yeah. I remember playing those parts a lot just growing up because I really liked, like, just the story elements. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about, I guess, talk about the the ending of the game later in, like, a spoiler section. Yeah, yeah. So how many of the uh, film references that, that you guys didn't get the first time around did you guys get this time? Uh, everything with the Matrix. <laughs> um, I did not get uh, any of it last time, so <laughs> I was just along for the Yeah, well, growing up, I was just like, oh, that's a really goofball reference, huh? That's probably I a have reference no idea, but it's Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see a Fight Club reference in there because I'd, I'd completely <laughs> forgotten that was in there. Also, Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty tight. But yeah, mm-hmm. this uh, this game really does kind of run the gamut of parodies. Like, you got Lord of the Rings, you've got Star Wars, you've got The Matrix, like you mentioned. you got Star Wars. you got Star Wars. <laughs> what else? <laughs> there's there's a ton of Beatles music in there, mm. uh, too, for, for uh, the game and soundtrack. Yeah. And that wonderful, wonderful MIDI compression. Like, MIDI's I, great. I can't believe how much I forgot how much I love MIDI's. Like, they're just such a wonderful, like, font. I... I I guess way to listen to music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a lot of nostalgia for the way MIDI sound. I'm glad that uh, computers can still play MIDI files, even though there's really no practical use for them anymore. Uh huh. One thing, pretty much, I thought was interesting is because because it is so like heavily laced with pop culture, is that is a really it's fun to play as like a time capsule back in time to see what was like pop culture like back in early 2000s on the internet. yeah right right like how um in in part one there's this outhouse you go to and when you you click on the outhouse it's like the door swings open and starts playing all-star and so it's like of course this is a, a reference to shrek <laughs> mm. but it's like you see shrek references today because it's ironic but back then it was probably a little bit more like oh this movie just came out let's put let's right put shrek music in there yeah exactly it wasn't like the yeah sort of tongue-in-cheek it's, meme that it is today it was right, more exactly. a sincere pop culture reference what else um uh i was going to when i was th- kind of thinking about putting my thoughts together you really do have to view it as like a period piece mm-hmm. like if you're gonna enjoy it like at first i was like oh gosh this is so like i don't know it felt outdated but mm-hmm. then i was like as i played more and more like you said it gets tighter and tighter uh, as it goes on but yeah, just like yeah, you have to like kind of view it with the like understanding of how games were like back then. I think yeah, it's necessary. I kind of think about it as like, you know, when you go back to watch a '60s episode of Star Trek, you kind of have to forgive yeah. a lot of the the cheesiness because well, that's just how things were made back then. You know. Uh huh. Were there any Star Trek just, references? I I just had that thought all of a sudden. I'm sure somewhere. Yeah, yeah. There's Spock in the fourth part. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, there was a Spock parrot on, on Dinky Island. I forgot about that. Um, okay, so really quick. Uh, so this game has nine alternate endings. 
um, based on decisions that you make in the final part. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the main one, and I thought this was actually a, a genius move on on the creator's part, uh, uh, Christopher Ushko. Ushko, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your last comes name. The, here comes the part of the podcast where we admit we have no idea how to pronounce his last it's name. It's either Ushko or, or Yusko. We had a big discussion about this before we started recording. but We love you, Chris. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the things that I thought he did that was really smart with the endings is that one of the endings um, links up perfectly with the beginning of Curse of Monkey Island uh-huh. in, in the LucasArts uh, Monkey Island series. And the reason why this is really smart is because if you've listened to any of our previous podcasts or if you have any familiarity with the Monkey Island series, the the connection between Monkey Island 2 and Curse of Monkey Island is really vague and tenuous, and it's not really explained how they fit together. But in this, it's, it's like, cl- really clearly spelled out, you know, exactly mm-hmm. how Guybrush gets from point A to point B. And I thought that that was really satisfying. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, to, to go through and see, you know, this kind of alternate, oh, okay, well, maybe here's how they how the two games fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the, the nine alternate endings you can get. If you choose not to go the Curse of Monkey Island route, the game takes you to a fifth separate uh, game that all it is is just random game endings. Um, <laughs> there's four good endings and four bad endings. And they, they very well. They, they very... That's... Uh... <laughs> they, they vary wildly in terms of, like, tone and... and what happens in each mm-hmm. ending um well they're all just like spoofs of random other media and it's just mm-hmm. so so goofy I'm what was to... uh you guys's favorite ending I oh i was hoping you'd ask this <laughs> if we if we take remove the curse of monkey island uh ending from consideration out of the the eight because other ones that's everyone's favorite ending right, right? what's so what was what was you guys's favorite ending I will say the sacrificial bad ending has got to be the best. Is this it, for the Cornmander. The Mighty Cornmander. <laughs> the Mighty Cornmander, which is, you know, played by, I think it's Tom Hanks? Yeah, it's Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. Who's apparently indistinguishable from Bill Murray. No, 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 like, seriously, everyone listening to this, Google, like, pictures of t- old Tom Hanks and old Bill Murray. It is really hard. <laughs> it's great. So, like, I'm being 100% legit here. Guybrush, in this ending that Phil is describing, he, uh... He faces off against a Balrog LeChuck in a, in a Lord of the Rings parody. and uh, But and right before he confronts the Balrog, Tom Hanks, wearing a Smurf hat, reveals himself <laughs> as the almighty Cornmander and, and gives Guybrush his sword. <laughs> See, that was my... Like, looking back on it, like, playing through it again, that was my favorite part because I remembered how just accepting I was of it growing up. I was just like, oh, yeah, it's the mighty Cornmander. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't question, like, who this character was or, like, what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just, I was like, oh, yeah, it's the yeah, yeah, Cornmander. It's the Cornmander, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's our Cornmander. I tried looking this so, up. Apparently, this is a joke that originated with this game. What? The mighty, this... the mighty Cornmander is not a pop culture reference. Well, yes. I thought it was just the thing that, you know, he just was I, like... I, I, well, really apparently it was. I always there. assumed it was, like, a th- something pre-existing or something. Oh, no. I'm, I'm looking. Not. No, I don't... I think it sounds like it's something that uh, Christopher made up it's, for it's, the game. It's pretty, pretty, pretty How great. How you, Chris? That actually yeah. reminds me, to, to derail the ending discussion for a second, one of the other things that's great about this game is that there's a built-in commentary mode. Mm-hmm. which is, like, totally unheard of for fan games. So you can turn on, like, a it's called factoid mode, I think, where uh-huh, yeah, you yeah, can, like, read, mode. like, little uh, colored text that pops up over the course of the game and gives you little details about stuff. Which I thought was really impressive that he, you know, went above and beyond that way to, you know... Yeah, like, no one does that. Nobody mm-hmm. did that. Even, like, games today. Back then, for sure, nobody did that. 
Mm-hmm. It was. It's a lot. It's really cool. Like you can really tell he's put a lot of love and care into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Anton, what was your favorite ending? Gosh, I was. I've been thinking about it. I want to say the Sonic one was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. know why. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, probably. Scooby Doo ending is also pretty. Scooby Doo was that was a good ending. Man, that door chase! Like, I don't even yeah. know how much time that must have taken to animate a, a like a an old mm. Benny Hill yakety sax door chase and click and play. Like that was still to this day, you know, regardless of how well the game is aged, what have you. Like that is still really impressive in my book. That door chase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You do really need to have, like, an understanding of how to program in Click and Play Games Factory to just appreciate how much freaking time that would have taken. Seriously. Okay, okay, yeah. I, I remember which ending I like the best now. It's the, Is it the Seinfeld ending? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Seinfeld ending. I was thinking about that and I was like, okay, wait, never mind. I take so you back. gotta explain uh, how this ending goes down. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to remember how they get there oh. now. Well, Chuck hits him, like, he gets a call from his parents. Yeah, yeah, brush. yeah, and they're telling him that they, they're, they're just having, he's having this incoherent conversation with his parents, and then Chuck's, like, his arm comes over and knocks him out with a frying pan. Yeah, yeah. And then he wakes up, and he wakes up, and then he's at this diner with uh, Elaine and, Elaine and, and Wally. Wally, and he's playing Seinfeld music, and he's talking about how Chuck stole his beard and his wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Stan dies in a, a, a truck explosion uh-huh and then it plays <laughs> seinfeld music again and it's just it's, it's a plus and then guybrush during the credits of that ending guybrush does uh, jerry seinfeld stand up uh-huh <laughs> it's just it's so goofy and so random and, and, my and favorite like ending uh when i played this originally and still to this day my favorite ending is the uh, ron gilbert ending oh uh, yes that, that is a good that one. one's pretty it's good. it's revealed at the end of the game that uh, LeChuck is from the real world and he's trying to bring Guybrush back, and uh, Guybrush wakes up from this dream and it's revealed that the entirety of MI2 was this fever dream of Ron Gilberts, um, the, <laughs> the original creator of Monkey Island. He wakes up in a hospital bed and it's revealed that he fell off the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland, and he wakes up in this hospital room with uh, Steve Purcell and uh, Tim Schafer and George Lucas. George Lucas all standing around him. And uh, Simon Jeffries, I think, the, the president of LucasArts at the time. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, and, and Tim, you were there. You were the, the dashing uh, uh, governor, Elaine Marley. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. He's like, sweet. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that one's still my favorite. Yeah, Just because George Lucas one. is there. George Lucas! Oh, we got to talk about Mini Chucky. Mini Chucky! Mini Chucky! <laughs> So, Mini Chucky's um, it great. In part two, um, Mini Chucky something. In part two, this uh, Austin Powers pe- uh, reference is uh, is put down with when uh, LeChuck reveals he has a, a miniature version of himself called Mini Chucky that he just keeps around, for, and it, it becomes this this hilarious running joke that Mini Chucky just kind of disrupts all of these meetings that uh, LeChuck is trying to have with Largo. And just being generally obnoxious, but LeChuck loves him so much that he doesn't pay any attention to the fact that Mini Chucky is wrecking everything and, and mm. making everybody miserable. Let's talk about Largo's unrequited love. Oh man, I felt so. Poor Largo. I had the I had the feels for Largo in this. Like <laughs> one of the things that I I never really appreciated about this game, and then like after playing it, 
was I really appreciate the fact that it actually explains away what happens to Largo. Mm hmm Like, like you never hear like in addition to a lot of stuff lost between uh, MI the actual Monkey Island to Lechek's Revenge and uh, and Curse of Monkey Island. Mm -hmm. Like but, that was one of the things I always wondered about the most growing up. Was like, whatever happened to Largo? Yeah, he just kind of disappears off the face of the earth in in the Monkey Island series. Oh man, what if uh -huh. he comes back in Monkey Island Six? Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I did I did feel genuinely sorry for him, which is kind of weird given that this is just a, a goofy pop culture fan game. Mm -hmm. But like, uh -huh. you do actually feel sorry for Largo at the end. He's doing all this stuff to try to get Lechuk's attention, and Lechuk just ignores him. <laughs> Largo, Lar Largo writes him this sad, like, Hallmark card note. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great because it, it's like they develop all these really goofy caricatures of these Monkey Island characters who are already goofy uh -huh. caricatures. Right. But then it's like, you know, you play through, like, all these four to five different parts, and then by the time you get to the end, then they, they get a little bit serious, and then you're like, oh, oh, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it kind of takes you by surprise. Uh-huh. Then you know, Guybrush, and uh, in one of the endings, the Curse of Monkey Island ending, he's, like, contemplating, like, the meaning of this whole adventure, and mm. it's all about finding the treasure in your own heart, and it's, like, gets weirdly serious at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it starts, like, coming up with, like, the Curse of Monkey Island music, or I guess it's still MI2, or... It, it, it puts him out at sea and it like recreates the uh, shot from the beginning of Curse of Monkey Island where you can see the moon and he's sitting in that bumper car waiting to be uh -huh. rescued. Yeah. Um, overall, yeah. I, I mean, has this game not aged well? Yes. Um, is it still... But it's still super enjoyable. It's still really fun and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. fun ride, really, really goofy. I actually did laugh out loud several times. Oh, um, yeah, same here. Just... You know, I wasn't really expecting to, you know, still find this funny. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of these jokes still really work. They, you know, some of them have aged pretty well. Yeah, I never realized how good Guybrush should look in a leather trench coat. <laughs> this is this is true. His <laughs> <laughs> quality. I liked all I the did sunglasses like, the bits. I did the, one of uh, one of the scenes that did make me laugh out loud was where Guybrush was suiting up with his, all of his black leather gear. Mm-hmm. Just because it's so out there for Monkey Island. I, yeah, exactly. I like where the fortress explodes and then he's like speeding away on his speed bike and he grabs his sunglasses in midair. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or the part at the end of part three where Wally's still sitting on the TNT box in the exploded fortress. It, like yeah. the entire thing exploded underneath his bottom. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Murray, Murray shows do... up and he's t trying to convince him to be a pirate. And then the yeah, end of right. three letters show up, and he's getting all freaked out by the floating words. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I like that they even explained how Wally became a pirate. Like, he, mm. he, he pretty much covered all the bases for the start of Curse of Monkey Island. Do we want to discuss, or discuss really quick best puzzle, worst puzzle? Oh, gosh. I, I wasn't paying any attention to that. Um, <laughs> I think that'd be fun to we do. Can, we can throw that in really quickly. Um, I call dibs on the rubber tree anvil puzzle. Really? Get rid of mini yeah, I don't. Okay, I mean that that's a bit out there. If you, don't, I mean, I it just like it's weird to think about because like a, when I played through this, I did it like under two hours just because I knew all the puzzles just off the top of my head. I still remember them from playing them way back when. Mm -hmm. uh, so really quick, Anton, so, was that your best puzzle or your worst puzzle? Worst puzzle. Uh, I was gonna say that's my best puzzle. Oh, I thought you said <laughs> you hated that. No, I like that puzzle. I. Okay. The whole mini. So can you can you explain really quick what the well, what the idea of the puzzle is? 
So when you get to Dinky Island, Mini Chucky grabs onto your face, and you have to do this whole series of puzzles with Mini Chucky stuck on your face. So you get to this this uh, electric fence that's got raptors from Jurassic Park behind it, and on the outside, <laughs> on the outside, there's this rubber tree, and if you climb up the rubber tree, it'll bend over, and the raptors will try to eat you. So what you have to do is go get a bowling ball and an anvil, and then it'll bend over far enough that the raptors will bite Mini Chucky off of your face. Yeah, that was a pretty clever puzzle. I, that was, was just like the whole setup for that was really great because you've got mini Chucky going all the way through all these episodes and then in this part he's just like he grabs onto your face and Guybrush is just doing this goofy like dance <laughs> with mini Chucky on his face and then it's like you're trying to solve all these puzzles and the puzzles themselves are pretty unhinged and it just gets mm-hmm. stranger and stranger as you go along right <laughs> I mean, the whole time so what's your worst yeah. puzzle Anton hmm I don't know. I haven't considered this as much. <laughs> let's okay. let's come back well, to you, Phil. What's your uh, best okay. puzzle, worst puzzle? Okay. Well, for I'll think about best puzzle while I'm talking, but definitely worst puzzle has got to be getting the map from Fat Island in part two. What? Like, like okay, it makes sense because it's a Star Wars reference. You know, it's like encased in carbonite. Uh huh. But the fact that it's embossed and you're supposed to like you know scratch it with like chalk, like, that doesn't work for maps. <laughs> I like that. I was just thinking, like if if you didn't know Star Wars, then you would have no idea. Oh, it's like you know stuck in carbonite. You wouldn't know that it's like it's you know bumpy. it's embossed. Yeah, it's bumpy. Yeah, I can see so, that. I guess I just got to like, that point like, by using everything with everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I think is really good for this game is that you can use everything with everything. There's a sh- small enough inventory that you can do that. So I think it's either that or the beach, where like you have no like incentive to use the shovel on the beach to find the heart lo- heart locket. I only did like, that because I remembered there's a musical number. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like th- just uh, I don't know. So, so can't buy this me is kind love. of objectively objectively looking at it. Those two puzzles I think are my least favorite, just because they're the two Ill- most illogical and would be just kind of awful horrible to figure out mm. my best puzzle is probably when you're on the speeder bike trying to get away from the checks minions and you have to deal with all of them in the different ways oh yeah i like mm-hmm. that I one that, i thought that was pretty pretty clever <laughs> i enjoyed it so i think my least favorite puzzle would probably be the yak puzzle on part two well i just didn't remember i knew i remembered what you had to do i just couldn't remember what how to make it register in the interface to get Guybrush to sneak up to the guy and put a bag on him. Um, I just like the angry yak faces. He's like, you better not mess with those yaks. They look pretty mad. I like that that part is named after uh, the yaks. It's called part two in the Valley of the Yaks. Uh, Um, For for favorite puzzle, um, I've got to go with the Mentos puzzle. Where uh, Guybrush oh, is it in the in the LeChuck's torture chamber? Oh gosh, I was just about where... to pick that one for my worst puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm with Anton on that one. Guybrush is in the, the well. Okay, so the puzzle itself. Okay. Well, if we're yeah, it's not okay, that good of a puzzle. Pref- I will preface this by saying the reason it's my worst puzzle is because <laughs> I forgot. I so I played the first two parts in one night. And then I resumed with part three later, and then I got up to the torture chamber, and he's like, I'll just do what Captain Raspberry Beard told me to do. And it's like, wait a minute. I forgot. <laughs> Hold up. Hold so up I played here. through well, the entirety of part two again, trying to get back to Captain Raspberry Beard. And he was like, dog boot watermelon. And I was like, okay. So I went back to part three, which I had minimized. <laughs> I tried putting these words into the password box. <laughs> in the <corner> of the <laughs> game. I was like, wait, is that not what it's supposed to be for? 
Well, then, I was going to say for yeah. a completely different reason, the fact that when you solve the puzzle, it just turns into a Mentos commercial complete with that, I gotta, horrible, that was, that was good. horrible AM radio quality audio. <laughs> it sounds like he just took a microphone, stuck it up to a radio. So it's, it's, the it's, audio for this game is phenomenal. It just sounds like it's Mentos the Fresh Maker. It's just like that if you look at it, he's just like, it's Mentos the Fresh Maker. Uh-huh, and then it just turns into an out-and-out commercial for Mentos. That's great. Like, you can totally hear Dominic Armada saying, it's Mentos, the fresh maker. Exactly, I know. It's just like, he, he so nailed the, the character of Guybrush in this. Um, yeah, so that's me. Um, did everybody get all their puzzles in? I think so. Anton didn't do bad. I guess he didn't do worst, yeah. No, that's, that's my worst puzzle, is the Mentos puzzle. <laughs> Although... I'm glad that it's so controversial. I, I really, really like the... The humor of it. It's like I was kind of miffed because I, I played through all of part two again to try to get the three words from Raspberry Beard. <laughs> but then the, the, when he's just like he's trying to rationalize how he's going to like, you know, he's gonna, there's going to be a dog and he's going to kick his boot at mini Chucky and then there's going to be a watermelon that appears and then cuts through their chains like butter. And then, and then it actually happens. I'm like, okay, I'm kind of mad, but that was really funny. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I liked oh. the the watermelon materializing out of nowhere gag. He's <laughs> just like, well, okay, all right, all right. And then they even went as far as explaining Guybrush's aversion to porcelain. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. They did <laughs> the porcelain torture chamber. Man, that was genius. That yeah, it's just like so many explanations for things that came out of nowhere in Curse of Monkey Island. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I genuinely couldn't remember if Guybrush had an aversion to porcelain in the actual games. Well, so the only. There's no reference to it. The only working theory is that Guybrush forms his fear of porcelain when Fester Shinetop hits, hits him over the head with a vase in Monkey Island 1. Uh, that's like, <laughs> like, I didn't remember if he had that in the actual games. No, well, it in doesn't curse. appear until Curse of Monkey Island. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, uh, that's that's uh, those are the puzzles. That gives you guys an idea of, like, kind of the, the tenor of the puzzles in this game. They're just kind of silly and you mm. know a little a little bit sillier than your standard monkey island puzzles i, I like the rake maze it wasn't a puzzle <laughs> but it was fun <laughs> it was great I think guybrush gets I the the message that guybrush uh gives you after you get through the maze is more irritated depending on how much brain damage he takes getting through the the rake maze <laughs> yeah i definitely remember that i remember trying really hard to get through that maze without taking any damage and i couldn't do it pretty sure it's impossible I, yeah, I think there's some the, corners that are too tight to get through. The guy Let's do a podcast is... challenge. Oh, man. If somebody can do it, then email us. Uh, <laughs> if a, you can get the game running on your computer. Hotmail us a picture. Hotmail us a picture. <laughs> Not AOL, uh, like AOL keywords. keywords. I like when LeChuck is like, better go check my Hotmail. I've been dead for a long time. Yeah, that gives you a, a. That's one of those time capsule moments that gives you an it's, idea of like. It's the, just like I, I really enjoyed all that this time around. Yeah. <laughs> do we don't usually rate minisodes, do we? By our usual rating system. I don't remember. We've only done two. <laughs> We've done three so far. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if if we were to do the the grading system, what would you guys give it? Well, what, I still stand by like. What, what's the scale? Uh, like, is me, this... I'm like uh, just because I loved it so much growing up, I would give it a seven out of ten. But I do think it's roughly around a six out of ten. Like, it's it's enjoyable and you're gonna like it, but it 
like I would love to. Let's get. Let's start a uh, uh, GoFundMe for this man and like you know remaster HD. Oh <laughs> man, 4K PS4 port. I would get behind that. Right? Yeah, I, w- I would give this a, a C probably just because, like I said, it hasn't aged particularly well, but there's still a lot of really funny moments and a lot of uh-huh. uh, mm. things that he, he designed really well within the confines of the of click and play that I, I found impressive. Yeah, okay. All right, Anton, what, what rating system you got? Because <laughs> I only got letters and I got numbers. <laughs> um, I'll use percentages. <laughs> How many mini? How many out of how many mini Chuckies would you rate this game? I'd rate it um, probably five out of nine mini Chuckies. Mini Chucky. All right, mini Chucky. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we have a special uh, via text interview with the creator of the game, Christopher Ushko. Yusko. I'm so sorry, Chris. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Commit, Ellie. Pick um, one. Uh, let's go with Yusko because he he's okay. got Chris. Chris, all right. So Chris. we'll uh, we'll come back after the short break with our interview. Okay, so we're back. Um, this half of the podcast is going to be dedicated to our uh, email text interview that we did with uh, Christopher. Um, he was, Christopher Chen. He was, he was nice enough to set aside some time to answer our questions about this ancient MI2 fan game that he did like 15 years ago. So Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, he's got some man. plugs at the end of this, uh, this email he sent me, so we'll, we'll be sure to plug his stuff when we, oh, when man. we uh, I know finish what with to. the questions. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's been busy, um, but we'll get to that when we get through the questions. I want to know what he's up to next, Card. He's, he's, <laughs> our, he's our childhood hero, so... Basically. So, <laughs> because this is via text, the way this is going to work is Anton's going to read off the questions, and then I'm going to read back uh, what Christopher sent us. We're going we're gonna to role-play this interview. It's, it's going to be the yeah. Q&A throwdown live in, right. in the studio what's the first question <clears throat> so we asked what was your main inspiration for retelling the story of monkey island 2 by using pop culture references as a vehicle to reinterpret slash poke fun at the original game and christopher writes this is a tough question to answer because it was never my intention to reinterpret or poke fun at ron gilbert's masterpiece let alone turn this into a full game before MI2, I made my Monkey Island fan fiction, The Devil's Triangle, into a game and intended to adapt its sequel, The Youth Conquest. But this was back in 2000, during a big movie phase of my life, where I guess The Matrix was my big influence. Because around that time, I thought it'd be fun to do a short animation of Largo and Guybrush having a martial arts fight. Once that was done, however, I didn't feel right posting it without context, so I added a short story building up to it. And because I was really into Fight Club as well, I laid down the exposition in the style of that movie. Then I added a full throttle scene before that. I think the whole game eventually turned into a big time capsule of random movies, shows, games, and music I was discovering as I came out of high school. Even old reruns of I Dream of Genie found their way into the plot. It became less about Monkey Isle and more about here's the weird world I live in right now. <laughs> but the conviction to make a full-length game out of all that nonsense... My friend Jess recently started collecting pictures of soda machines in video games as a joke. 
And now that joke has cascaded into him archiving thousands of soda machine pictures, and he's gotten noticed by the media for it. In a recent news interview, he explained that the reason for his nonsense is that things become funnier with repetition. I'm inclined to believe that MI2 may have stemmed from that same sentiment. What started out as stupid fun for a few minutes quickly lost its luster. But when I continued pushing to demake MI2, motivation found me again, and I sincerely wanted to see it through to the end because I was having too much fun with it. Hmm. I totally forgot about the Devil's Triangle, but I've like played through that multiple times as well. See, I've only I, I only played through the Devil's Triangle once back when uh, these these games were kind of newer. Um, so I, I my memories are a lot foggier of of that. But yeah, I, I, that was pretty well put together too. I mean, obviously not as polished as MI2 because it was earlier in his uh, his game making sort of like the whole like opening puzzle of like Gabrish being not updated graphics. That's because he reused basically all the. Uh graphics from uh the first game where he just lifted the sprites for guybrush that was a fun yeah. puzzle I like, that one. <laughs> I like all the people being like get out of here pixel freak <laughs> yeah we don't serve your kind we don't serve your kind yeah i thought that was that was pretty funny uh, uh a pretty funny jab at uh fan games that would just recycle mm. existing graphics from from whatever game they were uh because there are a lot of those yeah right <laughs> yeah i really like this this answer though it ta- I think it's pretty close to the heart of what makes this game a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of like, a, like, like he, its he style of humor. That, he mentioned that a lot of the stuff uh, in the game uh, got funnier with repetition. I, I would definitely agree with that. That there's a lot of stuff that just becomes fall on the floor mini ha- hilarious. Yeah, like mini Chucky, um, the mm-hmm. just becomes fall on the floor hilarious by the end of the game because these these jokes just keep coming back over and over. It's like they're kind of dumb jokes sometimes, but they're done with so, such conviction that it's mm-hmm. like yeah. you eventually just you just want to go along with it because you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Like the beard sweater <laughs> joke? Uh-huh, it's like... Yeah, I was alarmed by how many beard sweaters were talked about in Man, that game. I did not remember that. That yak farm puzzle was great. Okay, <laughs> anyway. Okay, next question. So we asked, looking back, what's your favorite gag in the game and which one would you redo if you could? And, Ooh, and nice. Christopher writes... I'd have to replay the game to see how many cringeworthy moments I'd redo. The big one that comes to mind, and I remember a lot of people having trouble with this, was the lemon battery electromagnet in the first chapter. (laughs) Probably could have worked if I left a science book around the island as a clue explaining how lemon batteries work. But expecting the player to decide that a citrus fruit can hold a charge powerful enough to magnetically lift a key was a bit of a leap. I had more fun with my early attempts at cutting corners, like when I got lazy with the blacksmith shop and simply threw in a bunch of unrelated <laughs> props with labels, i.e. the cow is the blacksmith because he has the word blacksmith over his head. <laughs> Blowing up the backhoe off screen was also a favorite bit of mine. I still continue to sneak backhoes into all of my work. I will say the happy. lemon battery puzzle was pretty high up there as far as worst puzzles for me go. <laughs> Man, the blacksmith yeah. screen was great. I totally forgot I, about oh yeah, that. Oh, the blacksmith was, screen is fantastic. I love yes. the blacksmith. He just uses all of these click-and-play resources to, to do the blacksmith shop. Like like he said, there's a cow just standing there, and he's the blacksmith, and then you like have to... The, there's a hamburger on the screen that's supposed to be a horseshoe. It was just like this really... Again, it's like it's, it's kind of a knowing jab at like fan games that uh, just recycle existing graphics and just do it really lazily which i thought i found it to be funny i like that he brings up the backhoe because and this is kind of a a side personal plug but this uh this backhoe puzzle was hugely inspirational for me and anton to the point where our our current adventure game that we're developing oh yeah the idiot's tale features a similar 
backhoe-related puzzle to the one in MI2. Um, so just throwing that out there. This game was really influential on us. I think that subconsciously, I think this is probably the major inspiration for us doing The Idiot's Tale, the, our, our current project. Huh. Yeah, that is very true. I hadn't really thought about that. Because we're sort of doing of like a... Yeah, we're doing like a, an irreverent takeoff of... Uh, King's Quest 1. King's Quest. Huh, I hadn't made that connection, but I think you're definitely right. Yeah, it's it's sort of like Whoa, we're, we're reinterpreting the first King's Quest with uh, just goofy, like, pop yeah, yeah, culture yeah. references and just kind of a, you know, silly sensibility about it. But we're basically mm-hmm. kind of going through the same story beats. Um, yeah, so, okay, so what's the next question? So we asked, based on our recollection, the MI2 fan game chapters originally came out in 2003. Obviously, the fan game slash indie game scene was vastly different from what it is today. Can you describe what it, what it was like to create and release a fan game in the early 2000s? Did you get coverage from any major gaming sites? What sort of feedback did you receive as as you released it in chapters? The Spanish community. You get an extra star from the Spanish website. <laughs> extra star from the Spanish websites. Uh, Christopher writes... It's funny to imagine a game built in click-and-play and animated with Windows Paint could find even a niche following in today's mile-a-minute indie scene. Back in 2001, the internet seemed a lot smaller. There was no pressure to build up a social media presence or keep up to date with modern game design. If you were doing this as a hobby, you could casually announce your game, occasionally post art, then have a soft release when you were finished. People would pass it around and you could enjoy their feedback. In the case of MI2, I released Chapter 1 as a demo and then disappeared for a year to work on the rest before uploading everything else at once. People were genuinely surprised to see I not only wasn't dead, but that I brought a whole game with me. The episodic release wasn't intentional either, as splitting up chapters was more due to click and play not being able to handle more than 30 scenes in one file. The game understandably didn't get a lot of coverage outside of LucasArts fan sites, but reviews among Monkey Island fans were steadily positive for months after release. There you hmm. go. So I think that's that's interesting that he split it up in chapters just because Click and Play couldn't handle it as one game. Mm-hmm. Which further speaks to how crazy cool this game is. Mm-hmm. Like, holy cow. It's like he, he conceived a game that was too big for Click and Play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Click and Play isn't the best engine, like, by any means, but holy cow. This is definitely the best best Click and Play game. I would agree with that. Uh, next. I mean, what's competition, honestly? Well, without getting too far off topic, there are a few Click and Play games that I thought were, were exceptionally well-designed. Um, actually, the first Click and Play game we ever found, um, Commander Keen 2000. Oh yeah, that, that, that was really unusually solid for click and play. Like I think we had mm-hmm. a high bar set for ourselves when that was the first one we found. Pretty much everything else we discovered was kind of underwhelming. <laughs> somewhat underwhelming. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least until you know, kind of circled back around to this. This is kind of a sidebar, but I think part of what also made all these click and play games fun was that because we had click and play, you could open up the game files and poke around and see where all the all the art is and how it was all put together. Right, right. I definitely learned a lot when I was first starting out as a game designer um, how these games were put together just by cracking open these click-and-play games and, and seeing how they did certain things. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the next question? All right, so we asked, describe your experience developing in click-and-play. What limitations of that engine did you find frustrating, and did you feel that its limitations forced you to be creative in getting around what it couldn't do? Yeah, this is ironic. This is what we were just talking about, basically. <laughs> uh, Christopher writes, The biggest limitation of click-and-play was probably its variable system. 
Variables are those invisible background numbers and true-false statements that keep track of all the game's conditions. In any other engine, you can create thousands of variables. In click and play, you only get four. So you have to plan your entire game around the idea that you can only do four things at any given time. Once those four things are done, the game's map has to be duplicated and reprogrammed with four new things you can do. There was also the issue of saving, since click and play doesn't have a save feature. It has a password system, but I hated the idea of players writing down passwords all the time. I just bit the bullet and made the chapters shorter, hoping people would find the time to sit through 30-40 minutes of nonsense at a time. A huge obstacle for me was the animation system. In The Devil's Triangle, I used the in-game timer for everything, but that game has aged terribly on newer machines with characters moving so fast they look like they're teleporting. I didn't want to repeat on MI2, so most of the in-game animation is manually timed with wait events hard-coded between individual frames and lines of dialogue, so it runs in real time instead of on click-and-play time. Working in click-and-play required more patience than logic. That, that, that is true. <laughs> I, I, would, uh, I can definitely back up everything he just said. Um, I do remember that uh, click-and-play was extremely limited on how many variables it gave you. It seemed mm -hmm. like it was it was four per object if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. Like well, you could assign in Games Factory at least. Maybe click and play only. It was four per scene. I I, I don't remember. Um, but yeah, well, he said that he had to manually time everything. That was kind of what I was alluding to earlier. That all the the full screen animation. There's like an individual event for every frame, so that like he said that the game wouldn't speed out of control on faster computers. Um, and you gotta yeah. you gotta appreciate how much effort that was for all of these like full screen cutscenes where it's like you know tons and tons of animation. Right, you had right. to do it all frame by frame by frame. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Phil, do you have any memories of working in click and play? <laughs> for, I never did a lot. Remember your I more more played all the games. Was your hit game Secret Man? Oh man, let's let's not go there. <laughs> Secret I Man was Secret great. Man. Maybe for another mini so I have a fond memories of Secret Man. Secret Man. Oh gosh, okay. I still yeah, that's right. Holy cow. Okay, last question. So we asked, what did you learn from the experience of developing the game, and what advice would you give to up and coming game developers? And Christopher writes, for starters, don't use click and play. Otherwise, <laughs> don't let doubt shoot down your ideas. Sometimes you'll spend a few days working on something and you might hear a little voice in the back of your head say, this isn't worth it. Get around that voice. Do whatever you can to disconnect from that voice and push on through. Whatever game you're making, whatever novel you're writing, whatever podcast you're recording, <clears throat> just give it a little more time before you call it quits. Sometimes motivation will test you before it decides you're worthy. And don't shy away from fan projects either. These past several years, there's been a lot of talk about cease and desist letters from companies and fan projects getting shut down. But in my experience, original ideas don't always come, and our favorite franchises are the things that can bring out an inner passion in us. Paying homage to what we love is a great way to learn new skills and inspire originality, so go nuts with it while you can. That's, that's, that's inspirational, solid advice. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with that, especially as, as somebody who's, who's, you know, even to this day is still working on fan projects, you know, that are, mm -hmm. are based on existing licenses. You know, sometimes he's right, you know, sometimes you do feel more inspired by kind of uh, latching onto an existing license that you find really inspirational than to just kind of go off into the wild and try to come up with something just out of nowhere. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's a great way to hone your skills too. I definitely agree with everything you said. Well, cool. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that he took the time to write us back. Me too. No, this like, is this, I thought this was God. really cool. Yeah. Um, so he has some personal plugs at the end of this email I was going to read through really okay. quickly. 
Um, he says, if you want to see my other click and play game, The Devil's Triangle is still available for download. For my non-click and play games, please check out my other fan, uh, bleh, sorry. <clears throat> please check out my other fan game, Space Quest Incinerations, and my original game, Chester Cornfield, Old Timey Detective. Um, if you want more pop culture parody nonsense like MI2, I have a seven-part series on YouTube called DuckTales, spelled with a Z. Uh, and finally, if you're sick of free stuff, I have an ebook trilogy on Amazon Kindle you can buy called Ancients Royale, about two dysfunctional brothers in Halifax who repeatedly have to save the world from monsters, gods, demons, and other supernatural entities that come into their bar. Huh. Cool. He's a busy guy. He's been all over the place, yeah. Um, I can't speak to any of these projects except for, um, well, The Devil's Triangle, obviously, because we mentioned that earlier. But I have tried his Space Quest Incinerations game, and unfortunately I didn't finish it, but that wasn't because I wasn't enjoying it. I just got busy with other stuff. But I I thoroughly enjoyed everything I I played. Um, It was was a very uh, polished uh, Space Quest fan game. Um, Was it Point and Click Space Quest? It was Point... It was point and click. Uh, yeah, it was more in the style of later Space Quest, not so okay. much in the, the early EGA Space Quest games. Cool. Um, I'm glad that he got into novel writing, too, because I felt yeah. like one of the things that was really strong about MIT was the writing and just the, uh, I don't mm-hmm. know, it felt like really uh, mature, just kind of yeah, yeah. story pacing and, and like bringing back themes and not forgetting about plot threads and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There were some like really dramatic moments in MI2 where I was thinking, this is probably a movie quote or reference or something, but I don't know, and it's pretty pretty dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that one that one Le, Le Check quote he has, uh, yeah, yeah, where it's like you don't have to uh, kill me to win, you don't have to show mercy to lose. I was like, that has to be quoting something, otherwise he's just way too good at writing this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I think the next part was definitely a movie quote when he said, feeling lucky, punk. If, well, yeah, I mean, that's like mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood, right? Yeah, there right. are several different LeCheck speeches that I thought were really well-crafted that I didn't know. Well, like... But I would be f- interested to read a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can uh, post links to all this stuff in the yeah. show notes. That'd, that'd be cool. Yeah, so, again, if you're listening to this, thank you, Christopher, for taking the time to answer yeah. some of our questions. Um, this was, I thought this was really cool. Yeah. Um, Sorry we don't know your last name. <laughs> or first, yeah. One of your name. We should do more fan game episodes. We should. It's, it's, it's a, sort of a different feel, different flavor than uh, playing uh, major games. Mm-hmm. I, I could get behind that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Um so that was this Threepcast mini-sode. Um, for our next full episode coming up, last episode of the year, actually, we're going to be covering Virtue's Last Reward. Um, yeah, boy. So if you guys have thoughts on that, send in your feedback. Uh, just, you know, thoughts on the game, your review of it, whatever, to podcast at ridgewayfilms.com, and we will read it on the air. And um, I think that's it. So... Let's wrap this up. Um, I'm Elliot. Wrap it up, boys. I'm Anton, also. And I'm Phil. And this has been Threepcast. Bye. 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 Bye.